Some, some of them are singing through struggle, God. They're, they're choosing this morning to lift up their voices to you in spite of a difficult week or even, Lord, difficult life. And so, Lord, the, the sweetness of their singing is because I know that there is struggle and there is choice and there is the, the will to worship that is manifest this morning, Lord, both, both because it is right but because it, 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 Lord, worship redeems our hearts from all of our anxieties and worries and troubles and allows our hearts and minds to set themselves on the glorious one. So we praise you, Lord, for what you've done so far this morning through our worship. We pray, God, that as we open your word, you would open our hearts to you and that you would be blessed as you work, Lord, your powerful work through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to children's ministry. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 15, Psalm chapter 15, in a few weeks we'll begin our series on prayer, and I thought that before we got there, we might think about a few possible ways that our prayers get hindered. Psalm 15 really talks about that very thing. In verse 1 it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and who does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So what's a person to do with a psalm like this, full of so many qualifiers and expectations, requirements, that precede prayer? It says, who's going who's gonna to sojourn with you, Lord? Who's going to dwell with you? Who's going to commune with the Lord in prayer? And then it has this extensive list of behaviors. Well, not the people who take up slander, right? Not the people who take up reproach. Only the people who walk blamelessly. What do you do with a psalm like this? Well, you could be apathetic. You know, you could, you could not everybody wants to dwell with the Lord. Not everybody thinks that, that dwelling with the Lord is, a, is an object or a goal worthy of aspiration. Not everybody wants practical fellowship with God. So one option in reading this psalm is you could just be apathetic and say, okay, Another option is that you could despair. You could have a clear enough view of your own sin. You could be humble enough to know that these qualifications and conditions are higher than what you could possibly meet. So you could read this psalm saying, somebody may be able to dwell with the Lord in prayer. Somebody might be able to enjoy practical fellowship with God, but that somebody ain't me. I am not fit to dwell with the Lord in this way. I've not walked blamelessly. I've not done what is right. I do not do what is right. So here's what I would suggest as you read a psalm like this. Have faith in Jesus. And by faith, I mean, to begin with, understand that Jesus read this psalm. Understand that Jesus knew this psalm. 
He, he probably had this psalm memorized, right? And understand with your imagination right now that when Jesus read this psalm, he was not apathetic about the goal of dwelling with the Father. He loved the Father. He, 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 he desired the Father. And neither did he despair. I mean, I think about this as, as, this, this high hurdles, this series of high hurdles of moral requirements that none of us meet that could cause any one of us with any right idea of our own hearts to despair and say, well, then no one can dwell with the Lord, or at least I can't. Imagine Jesus reading this psalm and saying, okay. Imagine like zero despair, total confidence, not pride, but just confidence. He sees the list of requirements and says, I meet those requirements. And therefore, I can dwell with the Lord. I can dwell with God. I can, I can be with the Father. So that's the first thing. Whenever you read a psalm where the levels of righteousness just seem so far above what you yourself are capable of, well, you need to remember that there was a human being who was also God who read these, who knew these, who prayed these. And when he read these righteous expectations, he knew that he had met them. And indeed he had. Jesus had indeed walked blamelessly. He had indeed treated everybody the right way, better than what they deserved. So when you read them, picture Jesus seeing this psalm and finding satisfaction in the requirements. And then you have to do a couple more things. You have to say, well, if Jesus is perfectly meeting this psalm, then the offer of the gospel is simple. The offer of the gospel is is that he's going to give me his righteousness applied to my sin. He's going to apply his holiness to my wickedness. And therefore, positionally before God, I can approach the throne of God through Jesus Christ with confidence that he has met the righteous requirements of this psalm on my behalf. Which is great, right? But there's another level to it, and that is to say, but his righteousness is so powerful and real and alive that it will over time actually begin to change me. And that I will over time, my behaviors over time, will begin to look more and more in accordance with this psalm. But that's all through Jesus, of course. So the thing is about this psalm is that there's a whole list of behaviors that, that frankly, none of us meet. And I'm going to talk about one of those behaviors today, and that's the behavior called slander. It's the sin called slander. In verse 2, it says, you know, who, who's going to be able to dwell with God? Verse 2 says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So I'm going to talk about slander today because in that list, that's a sin I don't think we often clearly understand. I don't know if we really understand what slander is. I'm not sure we understand how pervasive it is. So in order to understand what slander is, let me start by telling you about this incredible gift God gave you. So you have something that I'll just call God-given story skills. You have God-given story skills. Okay, so here's the thing. I want you to imagine we're all watching a movie together, and it's not a good movie. You know, like it's clunky, the acting's bad, etc. But we're all watching this movie together, and the first scene, the first scene is we're in the home of a kind of upper middle class home, happy family getting ready for the day. Uh, attractive, mus- well-muscled father, uh, unusually attractive wife, and, uh, and we're watching this family get ready, little kids, you know, 
and they're getting ready for the day, and, and mom has made them lunches, and dad's cooking them breakfast, and they're all so happy, and the husband kisses the wife goodbye, and the husband takes the kids and puts them into the, the, uh, the higher end of the minivan world, and, and they're driving to school, and the camera is looking through the windshield. You see dad driving. You see a little adorable boy uh, in, the, in the back seat right behind dad, and the camera's kind of focused on the little boy, and the little boy starts to ask the dad questions. Now, these questions exist in the movie just to give you information, right? So this scene is created by the, by the script writer to give you information. So this little boy is sitting behind his well-muscled father, and, uh, and maybe they're singing. Let's add this. They're singing together in the van, you know, a modern pop song, because that'll tell you that dad's relevant, right, and that, he, and that he's fun, fun-loving, and and my goodness, this is a wonderful father. And so the little boy is behind the dad, and the little boy starts asking questions. And one of the questions is like, how did you know you fell in love with mommy? And this is when dad says something really romantic, and he includes a tagline like, I felt the earthquake. And that tagline will come in to the end of the movie when he, when he does what he's going to do. And then the little boy says, um, Daddy, did you fall in love with mommy before or after you got your PhD in physics? And, 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 uh, the dad will say, you know, before or after. And then the little boy will say, Daddy, did you get your Ph.D. in physics before or after you got a gold medal in Olympic judo? And he'll say it was before or after. Now, already in the second scene, in a minivan, we know what's going to happen in this movie. There's going to be a nuclear crisis that only a man with a Ph.D. in physics could solve. But there are going to be bad guys. And you've got to have your judo skills and your Ph.D. in physics in order to allow you to defeat the bad guy. And we know that at the very end, he's going to beat the bad guy. He's going to hold his unusually attractive wife. An explosion's going to go off in the background as they kiss, and he's going to look at her and say, I felt the earthquake again. Now, you know all of that within 20 minutes of a movie. And the reason you know that is because God has given you skills mad skills in the area of story. I think that we are world-class, all of us, smart, dumb, educated, not educated, all of us, even as children, are world-class story interpreters. We can jump in with a limited bit of information, and we can predict pretty reliably what's going to happen with the little information we have. Now, that's relevant because sin in the real world, not just when we're watching movies, but in the real world, we're always watching each other's stories unfold. And we have only a limited bit of information about the reality of each person's experience. But we take the data that we get and we assemble it into something that makes sense. We assemble it into a story. And we tell that story to ourselves as a way of understanding the other. And we all do this to each other. And that's okay, except that we're sinful. And so our storytelling capacities are corrupted by sin. And I don't think that makes them necessarily worse at interpreting stories in general. I think it means that we tend to interpret stories in a sinful way. That's what slander is. Slander is the hijacking of this story skill where we take data from someone else's life that we observe, things they've said, things they've done, things they haven't said, things they haven't done, 
how they dress, how they act, and so forth. And we assemble that into a story, into a dark story, into a story that attributes to them sin, darkness, hopelessness, etc. That's what slander is. And boy, it was a big problem, as I'll show you in a minute, in the early church. And I think it's a bigger problem in the church than we realize. I think I can tell, but this might just be me slandering. I think I could tell by the way someone tells their own story how often they have been victims of slander. Because one of the things that happens when someone tells their story and they're free is they offer zero qualifiers, zero explanations. They just tell their stupid little story and move on. But if someone has been, uh, has, someone has been, has grown in a environment of slander, they will be so careful to give qualifiers and explanations to every possible place where someone might misinterpret or misattribute some action potentially to sin. So, uh, so, so, so you get a new car and you come into church and someone says, hey, did you get a new car? And you could just say, yeah, I love it. I'm so thankful for it. Or you could say, well, our old car wasn't really safe anymore. And, and, and we, we got as much out of it as we could. And um, we prayed for a long time and um, fasted a bunch. And, and then the Lord provided the means and we got it at this really great price. And what are you doing there? You're anticipating that at multiple levels, someone who is hearing about your new car is going to assign all kinds of dark, sinful motives like greed, lack of contentment, etc., to your story. And so you're trying your best to offer as many qualifiers as you can to avoid that outcome. So in many ways, you can tell how a church is doing on the subject of slander by how many qualifiers their storytellers, and we're all telling stories, add. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Well, you know, among friends, the wrong idea I get of you is generally charitable, not uncharitable. Like, you want me to get the wrong idea of you because I think you're great. Like, I think you're greater than you are. That's, that's what friends do. But over time, in the culture of a church, it, forget that that's such a basic function of kindness and friendship and love we begin to, even in our storytelling, and it gets so bad, it gets so bad we actually stop telling our stories because we're so caught up in, and maybe it's because we do it too. I, I, there's something going on there. Well, let's go ahead and define slander using a scripture. Romans 3.8 is a good place to start. In Romans 3.8, Paul says, and why not do evil that good may come? Paul's talking through the gospel. He's talking about salvation through grace alone, through faith. And he brings up an objection that could be derived from what he's saying. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Now, one of the things you're going to get from the text that we'll look at today about slander is that it is a, it is a, it is, God is going to discipline you for being a slanderer. And that discipline will be unpleasant. Right? Like being a slander is not a good place to be. So that ending line, their condemnation is just, you'll see that kind of a thing show up in a lot of the texts that we read today. 
But the, but the definition of slander is hidden here. I don't know if it's hidden, but it's just simply this. Paul is teaching that to be saved, you must by faith place your faith in Jesus and his righteousness. And some have said that what he's really saying when he's saying that is that sin doesn't matter anymore and you can just go and do whatever you want. But he's not saying that. What's happening is, is his opponents, his enemies, maybe even just random people are listening to him. They're pulling little data points out of what he's saying. And then they're saying, well, so what you're really saying is that we could do evil, that good may come, that sin doesn't matter. And we, we should just sin more so that grace can abound more. You see how they're doing that? Could you give me a little body language that we're, we're together right now? Like, do you see what I'm saying? They're, they're pulling these little points out and they're assembling them back into a very dark picture, a, a sinful picture. Uh, one of the things that's happening here is, is they're imputing motives. They're saying, Paul, this is what you really mean, as if they knew, right? One of the things they're doing is they're putting a darker filter on this than is real. So uh, I remember when you took a picture and like that was the picture you got. But now you take a picture and you can go in to um, you can go into your into your Instagram or whatever, and you can choose all of these amazing filters that make it look way better than it really is, right? Like that's the whole hashtag no filters thing, right? And I think that's really cool because I like pictures and I like to play with the filters, and they do make the pictures look really good. I think realtors have figured this out. Like, have you ever seen a house? with the photos, and then you go see the house, and you're like, I'd like to see the house in the photos, please. So, so the filters are cool, because you can make something that doesn't look great look better than it really is. Uh, you can even use filters to remove blemishes. You can use filters to remove errors, and so on and so forth. In other words, a filter is like grace, right? A filter is like love. Love covers a multitude of sins. So you could be in your worst moment, you could be having a bad day, and you could kind of be throwing out some, some bad stuff. But if I love you, there's a filter on my picture of you. And that filter is, God's with them, it's okay. There's some blemishes here, but my love for them covers up those blemishes. Love covers a multitude of sins, the scriptures say. So what slander is, is like the opposite filter. As a joke one time, I forget why I did this, but Paul Tucker, I had a picture of Paul Tucker, and I messed with it enough to make it look like the darkest, grossest picture ever. And I, I sent it back to him, and I was like, like this is the gothic you or something. I, I darkened it all, and I, and, and I don't know why I did that, but, it was, but, but, I, but I was flipping through my phone, and I found that picture. I'm like, ah! <laughs> you know, if, if there's this filter that is... That is based on love and kindness, and it looks to see the best in something, slander is the filter that puts the dark spin on everything. Slander is the filter that makes things look worse than they really are. And of course, the person doesn't think they're worse than they really are. That's really what they think. It, it, this is helpful because in this passage, the people are finding the worst possible implication of what Paul could mean when he preaches free grace, like the worst possible explanation. So it's like putting the darkest filter you can on someone's behaviors, on someone's life, on someone's story. But here's the thing, and this is why it's so powerful. 
you're putting a filter on a real thing. The facts are there. The implication is there. It's possible, indeed, to preach a pure grace message and wind up in what is called antinomianism, just the idea that sin doesn't matter. What they're saying is actually possible. And that's some of the power of slander. You know, when I take a a photo and I put a, a love filter on it, the photo itself is still there. I'm just brightening. I'm just brightening the picture. But if I take a photo and I put a dark filter on it, a slander filter, well, the photo's still there. There's something true about what you're seeing. You're simply choosing to see it as bad as possible and probably, more than you realize, actually creating an alternative reality that assigns as much despair and hopelessness to the other person as possible. It's essentially turning, if you, if you think about the filters and you get in there and you mess with the contrast and the colors and everything like that, uh, it's essentially turning the dark way up and turning the light way down. And friends, I really do think, maybe, I hope you see it right now, hopefully you'll see it by the end of the message, I really do think this is a problem for us as people. I think it's such a natural instinct to turn the darkness up in our view and ideal idea of other people. It's essentially turning down the optimism, turning down the hope, and turning up the pessimism. And I think we do this more than we realize. I was reading through the book of Numbers, and, uh, well, Numbers 13 and 14, that's where, uh, that's where the 12 spies are sent out into the promised land. And the idea is that they're supposed to go into the promised land and see if there's good fruit there and see if the land does indeed flow with milk and honey and so forth, and then come back and give a report. Two of the guys come back and they say, uh, this is interesting because all the facts are the same. They say the land has milk and honey. There's tons of great fruit there. Now there are giants and there's some fortified cities, but it's okay because God will be with us. The 10 come back and it actually says in the text, they slandered the land. They slandered the land and they said, yes, there's fruit there. Yes, there's milk and honey, but there are giants and we are like grasshoppers to them. And there are many fortified cities. Now, both of them are giving the same facts, but the filters are different. One filter is a filter of hope and love and optimism. And one filter is a fear of fear is a filter of fear and pessimism and darkness. Now, this tells me, by the way, that it is possible for us to slander our circumstances. That really gripped me. It is possible for us to slander our circumstances. It's possible to look at the circumstances in which God has placed us and either with gratitude turn the filter toward brightness and happiness and contentment, or it's possible to look at our circumstances and turn the filter down to darkness and hopelessness and pessimism. It's actually possible for us to slander the conditions of our lives that the Lord has provided. I think we do that quite a bit. You know, one thing to think about with slander, one of the reasons why I think you you will develop, if you think about this, a, a bitter taste in your mouth with slander, is that the devil does precisely this to us. The devil does this very thing. In Revelation 12.10, he's called the accuser of the brothers. And what's very interesting is, is that when the devil accuses us, he takes a real picture of us. But he turns it dark and hopeless and despairing. See, the devil is a great story reinterpreter. 
his first act of temptation in which he tempted Adam and Eve was to slander God, was to turn the very reasonable circumstances that God had created for Adam and Eve to turn the filter dark, to emphasize what was not available to Adam and Eve rather than all that they'd been given. Discontentment and ingratitude are like knobs on your Instagram, like those things, man, you can turn those things up and you can turn a pretty great life into a place where despair and hopelessness and ingratitude abound. The devil does this to us. He, he, does, this, he does this all the time. He wants to make our sin the main part of the story. He wants to make our sin the end of the story. And certainly we've given him plenty of valid data to do that, right? It's not unreasonable at all for him to look at our lives and chart out a trajectory that ends in hell. But of course, that's slander. Why is it slander? Because Romans 8 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? There are other parts of the story, brighter parts, much brighter parts of the story of our souls if we're in Christ than the sin. And those much brighter parts are not identified, appreciated, or accepted by the devil and the devil's people. Let's say it, the devil's people. But God sees something brighter. One of the hardest things that I came to realize as I prepared this message is just how often we slander God. I'm going to tell you four or five ways that we slander God. We slander God when we sin and see no immediate... When we sin and see no immediate lightning bolt of judgment, no discipline. So we sin, and it appears in the moment that no discipline or disfavor from God has appeared. Maybe we even get a promotion shortly thereafter, or something sweet happens to us in our life. And so we sin, nothing terrible happens to us, and we reinterpret our circumstances to say, see, God doesn't care about my sin. He's lax. He's, he's not concerned about practical holiness. Because, I mean, look, I did this thing and, like, I'm doing this thing and, like, nothing bad's happening. Well, that would be slandering God. Or perhaps we slander God by, when we sin by saying, look, God isn't changing me. See? God's promises are not true for me. It's reinterpreting the story in the darkest way possible. And we do it not only when we sin, but we do it when we succeed. (laughs) When we succeed, we tend to reinterpret our success as being mostly attributable to us. We we begin to believe that, that the reason why we've been successful is because we deserved it, because we worked hard for it, and so forth. So we do it when we sin. We do it when we succeed. And we certainly slander God when we suffer. When we suffer, hardship comes, and we automatically assign a dark motive to God using the data points provided to us in our story at that time. So if we do this to God, then you can sure as bet that we do it to other people. And it's really interesting. You know, the New Testament has all these sin lists, you know, these lists of behaviors that it's not really even, I mean, sometimes it's a list that's just saying, like, don't do these things. But oftentimes it's describing a kind of person. And I just want to read some of these lists to you. And I want you to understand the contextual rooting of slander in with all these other sins. Like, listen to the other things in the list. 
and understand that slander is indeed very dark. Romans 1.30, the list slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. 2 Corinthians 12.20, For I fear that perhaps I may come to you and I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Colossians 3.8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 1 Timothy 6.4, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions. 2 Timothy 3.3, heartless, appeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God. 1 Peter 2.1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So this thing that is all too instinctive for us, in which we reinterpret another person's story or circumstances in the darkest light possible, Friends, that's, a, that's an evil thing. And it's a thing that will destroy community. The truth is, is that slander is terribly, terribly damaging to our souls. I want to tell you that at this point, you may be feeling as if you feel like, okay, I think I have a problem with slander. Can I just tell you that I guarantee you, you are not a happy person. Slander is a terrible poison that you're injecting in your own veins. This is just all, slander is just terribly damaging to our souls. As we saw in Psalm 15, 1 through 3, slander will affect your personal, practical experience of God's presence. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may dwell with the Lord? Who may enjoy the Lord? Who may sojourn in his tent? Not the slanderer. The slanderer should expect to be disciplined from God, by God. Psalm 101.5. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. The slanderer should expect to experience fractured community. They should experience fractured community. And, and you know what? Oftentimes they'll blame the community. Their slander is actually fracturing their relationships, but they'll, br- they'll blame the other rather than themselves. Leviticus nineteen sixteen through 18. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Proverbs seventeen nine. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Proverbs 16.28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. one One of the difficulties of slander is that it makes it possible for you to just enjoy good old fashioned friendship. Because what you're doing 
instinctively, without even understanding it, is you're either hiding yourself and your story, because obviously the standard you use to use against others will be used against you, and deep within you, you know this. And so it's affecting your ability to tell your story, but it's also affecting your ability to be a faithful story sharer with the people that God has placed in your life. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, Paul says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never being able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So there's the appearance of godliness. They're always learning, but never arriving at the knowledge of truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, corrupt, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Verse 9. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Slander is sort of like... Um, one of those viruses, I can't remember the practical term right now, the technical term, but there's a virus that mortality, the mortality rate is so immediate that it really can't spread very quickly because the host dies before that virus can be spread as quickly as it might be if that host remained infectious for a longer period of time. At a relational level, slander simply distances you from others to the extent where your slander itself loses its power and others begin over time to recognize, well, this person is a slanderer. But if you wish to spread your infection, there's this new invention called the internet. And the internet is the place where people with zero relational skills, because in order to spread slander, you've got to like have people that actually think you're like something, right? people that know you and like listen and, and want to want to and value your opinions. But what if all of those relational requirements outside the capacity of the slander normal, normally, what if all those relational requirements were set aside and you could simply say your dark things to a group of people who didn't actually have to be your friend? Well, then maybe the infection can grow a little bit more than it normally would at least amongst others predisposed to the sin. So how can this get better? How can we get better at avoiding slander? How can we get better at turning up the filter of love, compassion, hope? As 1 Corinthians commands us that love endures and hopes, how do we get better at turning that filter up and turning down the filter of darkness and pessimism and judgment. Well, let's talk about some weaknesses 
that the scripture seems to suggest slanderers have. There are weaknesses that if you have these, again, what sin is, it's the hijacking of God-given strengths. It's the twisting of God-given gifts. And there are some gifts that come along. And of course, if you have a strength and you have a weakness, right? We know that. Uh, there's some gifts that make us more or less prone to slander, it seems, in Scripture. So the first one going to give you a plenty of opportunity for slander. The first one is, is that the Bible seems to be clear that slander is a particular challenge for women. So what you could do if you wanted to slander is you could say, my pastor is a chauvinist. Right? You could take the small details of what's being shared in this moment and conflate them into a darker story that serves your purposes. But I do think, and I, I'm hesitant to say it because I, I want to be careful in how I say it, but it does seem interesting. Paul goes through these lists of uh, characteristics, character qualities. He kind of outlines masculinity, and he outlines femininity in a few places. And in those lists, in the, last, in the area of uh, like masculinity, he'll say, these are, these are good attributes, these are bad attributes, you know. In the, uh, in, and he'll warn against certain attributes for men. And he'll say, these are good feminine qualities, and these are some that you need to be careful of. In all of the lists that reference feminine characteristics, slander is mentioned as a possible problem. Indeed, the passage I just read from 2 Timothy 3 says that weak-willed women are carried away by slander. So you need to know that weakness. What, what's going on there? Well, like I said, what's going on there is there's a certain gift set and glory set in femininity that can be corrupted in a specific way. Just as there is a certain gift and glory set in masculinity that can be corrupted in a certain way. So we're talking about how to get better at this. Well, I think one of the ways to get better at this is to, if you're a woman, know, like the Bible seems to suggest that this is more likely to be a struggle. Though, I want to be careful and say that in many of the passages Paul lists, men are found guilty of slander, including the Second Timothy 3 passage. It seems to be a weakness you should know about. It also seems husbands to be a weakness you should know about. If the primary challenge of a wife is to respect her husband, and one of her sinful proclivities is to slander, to pull all of the data points away and say, yeah, I can't respect him. If you know that's an ongoing challenge, then like maybe some things in life could be adjusted. Like maybe if your wife's struggling to respect you, you need to play less, fewer video games. Like, like, like the point is, is if there's already this weakness and this tendency to reassemble behaviors and say, this is a dark, hopeless, despair-worthy picture. Then, like, try to be, keep your word. You should do that anyway, right? Like, if you say you're going to do something, do it. But here's the thing. The true test of masculinity, men, husbands, is whether you will lead your wife through this struggle of slander in a Christ-like way. There was nobody more slandered than Jesus. Jesus is the most slandered human being ever. But when he was reviled, he did not return with reviling. 
There's a way to shut down a slanderer without slandering against them. And that simply means a clear naming of the sin and a choice presented. Do you see this? Are you concerned about this? Would you like a a redo on the conclusions you're making right now? So femininity seems to be one particular area where slander might have more manifestation. But the second one is intellectual pride. We all like to feel smart. We like to see things that others cannot see. I like that. That's not right. That's not good. I like it. I like to, I like to notice the thing that wasn't noticed. You know, I want to, I want to enroll in like the, uh, the world tournament of where's Waldo, you know, like go against the best where's Waldoers in the world, finding Waldo as quickly as possible. Now we all like to feel smart. We all like to see things that others cannot see. And this is partly, partly a God complex, right? Because there's one alone who sees perfectly. But man, we can get intoxicated with our capacity to see the hidden motives of others, which is not, by the way, a thing you actually have or not very good at, certainly not righteously good at. But if we struggle with intellectual pride, and many of us do, then slander can be temptation because it allows us to feel like we see what someone else doesn't want us to see. We can see the secret. We can see the conspiracy. We can see the hidden darkness. And we feel smart. One of the weaknesses that that, that leads to slander is the love for certainty. (laughs) We all like to feel like we know what's going on. And we all like to feel like we can project the future out. We all like to feel like we can predict other people's behaviors. And of course, that's why we have social rules, right? Because there are social rules that are essentially saying like, listen, you can trust me. I'm not going to just like chop your head off right now. Like there are these, there's this sense in which we interact with each other where we're all taking a chance. We're all taking a risk. I don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what I'm going to do. You could do something really crazy right now. You could be a danger to me. You could, you could say something terrible to me and so forth. And so we all have to do this dance together where we attempt to anticipate what the other is going to do. But we don't like uncertainty. We don't like waiting for someone's story to be redeemed by Jesus. And we'd rather just preemptively say, this person is going to be bad for good. And we write them off. We darken the picture because the pessimistic instinct is if you don't hope for anything, you can't be disappointed. Well, one of the one of the real clear ways that slander manifests, one weakness we have is just through traumatic experiences. Painful experiences have a way of superimposing the darkest possible view on other experiences that are similar to that one. I had a friend, Angie and I have a friend that was in Afghanistan and he was in some really bloody battles and he was finally discharged and his discharge came through St. Louis and so uh, he didn't live by us, but he stopped to visit us on his way home 
and the night that, so he's flying in from Afghanistan. I don't know how many hours and how many planes and how many connections were made, but he arrives in St. Louis and it's late at night and he's coming to visit us on the east side of St. Louis. And he puts his little GPS thing in, our address in, and the GPS takes him right through East St. Louis at like midnight. And East St. Louis is really a, a town of rubble. I mean, there are just broken down buildings everywhere, trash everywhere. It's a pretty rough place. And this guy's just out of Afghanistan, just out of fighting enemies that wanted to kill him. And he's driving through this nasty, dark place in the middle of the night. And when he gets to my house, he tells me privately, he doesn't tell his wife or my wife, tells me privately that as he's driving through East St. Louis, he is sure that he saw Taliban hiding behind buildings holding rocket-propelled grenades. So what's going on there is, is a traumatic experience, recent traumatic experience indeed, is now being superimposed on a new reality. And it's a whole like learn from your pain thing, right? It's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just what we do. It's, it's a desire to be safe. And so he's superimposing the worst possible interpretation of his circumstances because he's afraid and he's hurt and he's wounded. A lot of times like someone breaks our heart and not only do we learn the lesson, we overlearn the lesson. Like hope. Hope is of the Lord. Forgiveness is of the Lord. Optimism is of the Lord. One of the one of the key weaknesses we all have that leads to slander problems is our problem with authority. Authority seems to be a primary target for slander all the way through the Bible and all the way up until today in 2 Corinthians 6, 8. Can you, can you imagine, like, you're a Christian and you wind up in heaven and, and you realize that one of the sins that um, you've been forgiven is that you were really rough on Paul. <laughs> can you imagine that? Like, like, man, I was an idiot to that guy. Like, the Apostle Paul, you know. Man, what's the deal with that? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. So what's happening in this passage is, is that, you know, people are let down by leaders. They're let down by people who have pretended to be one thing or another. By the way, the way we find out that people weren't what they said they were is God does it. God does the work. Like God, God does the work. You can trust God to take care of fake leaders. Like you can. People are experiencing, uh, have experienced false leadership before, hypocritical leadership before. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, ready to die in a moment's notice for Jesus, ready to give all he has for the churches that he loves, he's being treated as an imposter. He's being slandered against. Now, some people, and this is key, I really want you to think about this. Some people will say, but you don't understand. I've been hurt by authority. I've been misled by authority. I understand and I get it because I have too. But you know, here's the thing I want you to remember. Nobody's hurt me more than me. Nobody's lied more to me than me. And I seem perfectly willing to trust me. So maybe this whole hurt by authority thing is a bit of a smokescreen. 
Because after all, you seem perfectly willing to trust your own perceptions, which is the overwhelming problem with slander. The more we trust our take on things, separate from God's word, separate from God's authority, the more we, tr- we trust our insight on things, the more likely we are to share those out loud. And if we are wrong, our take on someone that we share is the slander, and it is terribly discouraging for someone who honestly looks at their own life. Listen, this is what, this is what people do. This is what I talked about when we read Psalm 15 at the beginning. The average Christian looks at their life and says, I am tempted to despair. I am tempted to despair. I, I see all kinds of evidence that suggests I'm not his. I see all kinds of evidence that I'm not getting better. I am tempted to despair. And so the average Christian is just fighting for hope in Jesus on their own account. And then some doofus comes along and slanders them and says, there is no hope for you. Despair. It's just as dark as you feel it is. Maybe worse. Slander is incredibly painful to the people we're called to love, to the people we're called to encourage. You know, we're called to do is we're called to go to that person who's doubting themselves and say, you know what? I understand you. I understand there is there. Yeah, there's some sin here. I see that. But can I just put my hand around you and just say, like, our Savior is bigger than your sin. And and. There is hope and love for you at the cross of Jesus. And I see your story coming out a different way because I see who your Savior is. I know whom you have trusted, and I know that he is able. So let me do a personal confession. I, I, my quickness, I think, to slander is pretty dang humbling. I don't want anything to do with something the devil uses to discourage weak saints. I hate that I see that I have this pride that I, I so quickly assume omniscience where I, I feel like I am capable of seeing, really seeing. When God alone sees, when God alone discerns fully. I feel I hate the impulse for control. Like, I'm not okay having questions stay questions. I want to conclude someone else's story as quickly as possible so that I can move on in certainty and strength rather than walk with them in weakness and uncertainty. So what do we do about all this? Well, Matthew 15 is a good place to start. And if you have your Bibles, just turn there and we'll conclude here. Matthew 15 Jesus tells us in Matthew 15, 19 through 20, that slander is a heart problem. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So it'd be easy to read this passage and say, well, then I'm toast. Because I have no idea how to get something like slander out of my heart. Well, but what if you just did what the woman in the next verse did? Look at verse 21. 
And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. Well, let's just slander Jesus then. He didn't answer. I asked him for help and he didn't answer. Jesus isn't for me. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, is it not right? It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, my goodness, we need to start a Jesus survivors blog. That is just spiritual abuse right there. That is domineering leadership if I've ever heard it. He, 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 did he imply that she was a dog? Like, unacceptable. Unacceptable. He did that. Cast him out forever. Jesussurvivors.org. She said, verse 27, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What's happening here in this beautiful moment is that this woman has put all her hope in Jesus. So much so that she is unwilling to let his silence and even a hard saying deter her from believing the best in him. She says, Jesus, I'll take a crumb. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. From there, verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat there. And the great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered. And when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. You see Jesus healing people's mouths, their speech. You see Jesus healing people's eyes, their perceptions. You see Jesus healing people's walk. Here's the cure to slander. It begins with believing the best about Jesus. The most slandered person ever. Do you believe that he will heal you? Do you believe that he will change you? Do you believe that he will change your perceptions and your speech? Do you believe that he will cast out the darkness of your heart? Let me ask it this way. Do you believe he's the only one that could? Let's start there. Do you believe he's the only one that could? Listen, if you have faith enough this morning to say that, I want to tell you, there is no self-congratulations necessary because the faith to see even that about Jesus came from God. Even that small capacity to believe that Jesus is the only one who could 
is evidence of what God is doing in you. And let me tell you one of the first things God must do in you and for you. He must reject the devil's slander against you. And he must say, give him a new, give him new clothes. Like dress him in fine linen. Take away all of this disparaging. Satan, be silent enough from you. He is my child. He is in me. He is in Christ. In other words, in order for you to even have the faith to say to Jesus, Jesus, you're the only one that can help me. You're the only one that can heal this terrible tendency I have in my heart. It's already evidence that God has rejected the devil's slander against you. And that he has imposed the hope that comes from Christ to you and that he sees you in a hopeful way. And if you'll understand that God sees you in a hopeful way, then you'll learn to see God in a hopeful way. And if you learn to see God in a hopeful way, you'll learn to see God's people in a hopeful way. So that all slander ends, the beginning of the end, is when God, through Jesus, accounts you as righteous and clean and forgiven. And he does not hold your iniquities against you but gives you grace upon grace. And it's you being this object of total mercy that will transform you into a merciful person. Let me conclude with Ephesians 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. None. You think that's about cuss words? I wish it was about cuss words. I wish it wasn't about slander. And gossip. Like, I wish it was just about cuss words. It's not. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God is in Christ Jesus, as God in Christ forgave you. Look at that verse again from the question of which filter you're going to turn up. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness and kindness to extend grace upon grace to us, Lord. If anybody has a reason or an excuse to lose hope in a person, it is, Lord, you having perfect reason to lose hope in me. And yet, Lord, you are the God of steadfast love. And your steadfast love endures forever. And your mercies are new every morning. Lord, as far as the east is from the west, so you have removed our iniquity from us. Lord, you do not regard us as our sins deserve. Blessed is the man whose sins have been forgiven whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The beginning of this end, of, the beginning of the end of slander is your grace imposed upon us through Jesus Christ. And it will have its full work in us. As objects of mercy, Lord, give us the faith to believe the best in you. And then give us the faith to hope the best for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The table is here this morning for you to come and participate in the objective reminder of Christ's kindness and mercy towards you.